Hi, I'm Lara Bennett, and you're listening to Highway Butterfly, the stories of Neil Cassell. Neil was a gifted singer, songwriter, musician, and friend to many. He released 14 albums as a solo artist and collaborated on countless projects with other musicians. After his passing in 2019, his friends and family created the Neil Cassell Music Foundation to provide instruments and music lessons to students in New York and New Jersey and to support organizations that offer musicians mental health care. One of the featured projects of the newly formed foundation is the tribute album, Highway Butterfly, The Songs of Neil Cassell, a sprawling 41-song collection bringing together a galaxy of rock and roots luminaries. We've asked the contributing musicians to share their memories of Neil and their stories of making the record. Highway Butterfly, The Songs of Neil Cassell is out on November 12th. Pre-order the album and learn more about the Neil Cassell Music Foundation at neilcassellmusicfoundation.org. Hi, Adam. Thank you for joining. Hello. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. I'm at a lodge. Interesting. In, yes. Okay. That's the sort of occult thing <laughs> back here. Very vibey. So you and Neil were great friends and bandmates in the Chris Robinson Brotherhood, Circles Around the Sun, and you played together in so many other iterations, like jam sessions at Terrapin Crossroads and Bobby or Sierra Studios, and probably more than that. So can you tell me about how you first met Neil? Yeah, I met Neil through the Chris Robinson Brotherhood thing. Actually, uh, I had never met him before, and Chris said, this is going to be our guitar player. And yeah, I think we kind of like vibed each other from a distance for a while to see you know who we were it took a while to figure each other out but uh turned out we had a lot of the same um we grew up in the same area we're both east coast uh, he's jersey i'm from new york city and kind of similar time frame we played all the same clubs we knew a lot of the same people we had made a lot in common and so we just started started hanging out a lot together pretty pretty quickly we became each other's little lifeboats on the road. And you spent a lot of time on the road, too, for many years. We did, yeah. The Chris, Chris Robinson thing toured a lot, which I, I, I like. I'm fine with that. Yeah, I probably spent more time with those guys and in a bus than I did at home. Not probably, definitely. And uh, so, yeah, Neil and I had a thing. We would, you know, finish our sound check, and then we'd go and get dinner together and... You know, we just had a lot of same things happen to each other in our lives. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's, I don't know, he just felt like a brother that I never had. Right. Can you remember the first time that you played together and what you kind of felt when that happened? I mean, the first time we played together was probably just rehearsing. Yeah, we rehearsed in Los Angeles. That band did... We toured California for a while, just California, before we moved out to the rest of the country. So we spent a lot of time in a van, but the rehearsal place was the first time we played. And Chris is a concept guy, so I think he kind of had a concept for the band, and then the band had to sort of figure out its own sound. So that was a lot of me and him 
because I played the, you know, I played keys and I would do lead stuff and he was lead guitar player. We had to figure out how to weave ourselves around each other. So that happened early on. And I mean, he's just such a, an open person, you know, as far as working stuff out, he's not set in his ways as far as playing goes. Um, it was easy to, I wouldn't say compromise is the right word, but when you both kind of meet, you know, you both do what you have to do to fit musically. Uh, he was very aware of that. I think one of his favorite bands was the Rolling Stones. And I think because of the guitar interplay in that band, I think he was kind of obsessed with the way that you can have two guitars that are completely different styles and they fit perfectly. So for him, that was me and him. That was what he decided. He really liked playing with other guitar players. So he, he kind of had me be his other guitar player. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Right. So... We decided early on that we had to be, we had to, uh, you know, know what each other was going to think or what each other was going to play before it happened. And it totally happened. We could finish each other's sentences musically all the time. Right. There is definitely an unspoken language uh, between you two on stage. That's probably pretty hard to find, I imagine. Um, and I'm sure that took some time to develop or did it happen right away? You know, I don't remember there ever being a time that we were stepping on each other in any way. I think we were both pretty aware. Well, see, I guess the, our favorite thing would be if a, an audience member after a show would say, well, I couldn't tell who was playing what. when we knew that we were doing our thing properly because they wouldn't know if it was keys or guitar like what was going on because we just became one thing i think it happened pretty early I, I would attribute a lot of that to him because he was so obsessed with the idea of fitting in he was a band person and i'm a band person too we like our bands they become our families you know you have to find your your place and he was really good at that. So I, I think it's mainly on him. I think he really worked around what I did and found a way to make it stick together properly. Right. Yeah. Well, it worked well because it was definitely like a very smooth continuation. And just, yeah, when it was on, it was the best ever. Yeah, for sure. It was, um, it's, I knew all his licks and he kind of knew all my licks and we could, we could throw each other's licks at each other for jokes and stuff, which only we got. It was, I never had, I mean, I never even had to look at him most of the time. Mm -hmm. I never had to cue anything. I always knew from his body, just the way that he would move without, you know, peripheral vision. I could tell from how he was playing and just a little move when we were going to change into something else. And he never had to look at me. It, that's, I've never had that before. 
and never since, you know, usually you're making eye contact with somebody and here we go, you know, but with him and I, we could have done it in separate rooms. It didn't matter. Wow. So I would love to hear in your own words, the story of how Circles Around the Sun started and maybe some <laughs> unknown facts about those, you know, that first studio session. Uh, well, that wasn't, we were not a band at all. Neil was asked by Justin Kreutzman to put together some music. They didn't want to use canned music, anything that anybody would know, and they wanted it to be instrumental. So Neil had worked with him before scoring some of his films. So he just asked Neil if he'd be into making a bunch of music. And Neil called me and he said, cool, let's you and I do it. I know a bass player. And I said, cool, I know a drummer. And we just went in the studio for two days and recorded straight. We never listened back to anything we did. So we didn't really know what we were doing at all. The first time that Neil and I actually heard that music was at Levi's Stadium when we went to go see the Fairly Well show. We had never listened to it. We didn't have time because we had to make six and a half, seven hours worth of music in two days. And the songs were 20 minutes long. I mean, we basically just came up with some themes and jammed until we were completely out of gas. Like there's nothing left at all. And then we'd stop and go, all right, next one. And if we had listened back to everything, we wouldn't have had time to do six hours. So we basically asked the engineer, did it record properly? He said, yes. I said, all right, next. And then the first time we heard it was through the giant sound system at Levi's Stadium. And that was a really amazing moment. And Neil was coming down the bleacher steps with a beer and I was looking at him and it was loud. It was, we thought it was too loud because we, we didn't, uh, we didn't put a lot of faith in that music. We, we were just trying to fill space. I mean, it ended up being really cool, but we didn't know because we never heard it. So we were a little embarrassed. We didn't want it to be loud. We I was like, Neil, it's too loud. We got to get the sound guy to turn it down. Like people are going to actually pay attention to this and they're not supposed to pay attention. It's supposed to be like background music, you know? And, but then we looked around and the stadium was full and everybody was dancing, which was sick. And we had a little moment, Neil and I, where we were like, oh, maybe this should be something. And then after the show, uh, I'm not really a social media person, but Neil was. And he was, you know, him and the drummer, and they were looking at their stuff going, oh, people are trying to figure out who it was. And they, they, people are saying, oh, it's these, I know who it is. It's these old tapes that they never found from Jerry and so-and-so playing together. That's what it is. And we're going, no, it's not, you know. And at that point, I think we, in the van ride back to the hotel, I think we realized that uh, we should probably start a band.
yeah. the rest is history. Yeah. So that was, yeah, that was it. We, we decided to do it. And we didn't have much time because Chris Robinson Brotherhood was playing so much. I don't even think we played more than 10 shows in the first two years that we were a band. We got really lucky, though, because of that show. There was kind of a built-in fan base because so many people not only saw the show, but streamed the show. Mm-hmm. So it was, you know, during set break when everyone was going to freshen up their drinks or load up their bongs or do whatever. Um, we were playing. So we got super lucky that a bunch of old farts that don't even sing could, <laughs> could, uh, could actually like get in a tour bus and tour around and have people show up at shows, you know. There's a, a really great story that Neil told in a, another interview where he was just kind of in the back of a stadium and someone walked up to him and said, I don't know why I'm asking you this, but you just look like you would know. Do you know who's playing right now? <laughs> yeah. I said, yeah. you're never going to believe this, man. <laughs> it's me. Yeah. <laughs> so awesome. <laughs> yeah, that was a really magical time. We went to all of the shows. Um, it, was, it was amazing. I mean, it was such an amazing opportunity to do that. And we had no idea when we were recording it. We had no idea. It was just two days of me and Neil, who knew each other really well, and then two other guys that we didn't know that well. And that was it. And we just were like, okay. See you, maybe never. Bye. Like that's it. Thanks for the for the two days of work, and then now we're we're still going. Yeah. So you released the album, obviously, due to high demand, and <laughs> <laughs> and then you went on to make more albums. So I'm wondering how you know the discussion around playing shows and recording started and happened. Well, the shows that we had done. Before we made the second record, as we made the first record in 2015, I suppose, because that's when those shows were. And then we made the second record in 2018. So it had been a few years and we had done shows spare, you know, sparingly here and there. But I guess maybe because we didn't play that much when we did, it was kind of a big deal. People actually came out and we would do these little runs and we would just jam at sound checks and record stuff on our phones. And we had a bunch of ideas that we had gotten on our phones from, I don't know, two years of, of gigging here and there. And yeah, the record label that, that took us on said that they would like us to do another record. So we, we did, it was great. It was, that was a m- more fun because we knew we were making a real record. Uh, the first one was not. We, there was no thought that we was going to be anything except music that nobody paid attention to. So this one, we took a little more time. And, and then the, the, one, the last one we put out, we took even more time and wrote a little more and, and got things a little more concise. Yeah. I don't know if that answers your question. I, I wandered. Let it wander. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, so you recorded uh, the self-titled album at Pliers, um, mm. which was also where Highway Butterfly uh, was recorded. Um, had you played or recorded there before, and how was it returning? I don't think that I had recorded there until we did that record, uh, the Circles Around the Sun record. I know Neil kept saying that, you know, he because Neil and Jim Scott uh, were close. 
And he kept saying, oh, you got to see the studio. It's amazing. So pretty sure that was the first time I recorded there was for that record. And, uh, and then, yeah, came back for the, for the Highway Butterfly stuff. Two separate sessions, I guess. But yeah, that studio is incredible. And, and Jim Scott's amazing at, uh, at helping, helping you find what you're looking for. He's got a really good way of getting ideas out of people without, without the people feeling like they're being pushed, you know? Mm-hmm. So before we dive into Highway Butterfly, I want to hear how you became familiar with Neil's solo work. Uh, just from knowing him. When we first met, I, I, I knew him more as he was the guy that played with, you know, Ryan Adams and all that. And then uh, actually some of the guys in, in the Chris Robinson brother started listening to his records and they said, oh, you got to check out his solo stuff. It's amazing. So I did. And I, I don't know. I, I always thought it's, it's strange that he never did a show with a full band as far as I know, since I knew him and he had so much material to pull from and it would have been amazing. I, I don't strange that that never happened. Do you remember like the first album that you heard or, or what you thought when you heard it? I think the first song I remember hearing that I thought was really amazing was Sweet in the Distance. It was interesting doing the Highway Butterfly sessions because the words are very important because other people are singing them and they, I don't know, I, I paid a lot more attention because it wasn't, not that I didn't pay attention to Neil when he was doing his thing, but because it was somebody else, I really paid attention to stuff uh, lyrically and yeah, he's a great lyricist. Nothing's gonna stop you now. Everything you want is coming in good time. No one's gonna bring you down. This took too long to find. I keep you know beside my bed. It gets me through the longest of long nights. I keep the stream inside my head. It's simple. Yeah, lyrics are tough for me because I like instrumental music because it's easy. It doesn't hurt. Mm. <laughs> lyrics can hurt. Right. <laughs> Neil had a way of, of getting to that place, that sort of, there's some pain in there. There's, there's dark, obviously, darkness. And uh, yeah, yeah, that's really amazing way of expressing it. So sometimes it's hard for me to, to especially now, to hear that. Sure. Yeah. That's been a, a common theme in these conversations is people, you know, listening to lyrics and thinking like, wow, I'd, you hear it, but you don't really think about it, you know, yeah, until, it's the, until you do. The hindsight stuff when you, you, right. all of a sudden you start hearing all these things in the lyrics and you go, oh, my God, he's been saying this all along. and How did I not pick up on it? But, you know, that, I think that's hindsight stuff. yeah. Absolutely. Right. So it's, it's tough, but uh, all of these tributes are really beautiful and special. And you contributed to 13 songs on this record, which is a lot. Yeah. So. I, I live close by. 
<laughs> That's convenient. Yeah. Um, what are some of your favorites from these sessions? Um, all the luck. I think that was the first one we did. Um, I think that's a cat's back one, and I'm not trying to toot. I'm not picking that one because it's, it's my band, but I really love that song. And I think it came out really great. And Jim had some really cool ideas for the string machines. And, and he, he just, he mixed the shit out of that song. It sounds, I mean, he, Jim always does. His stuff always sounds amazing. sure was a standout um, what did i say the other one was I, I well i wanted to mention um that the intro song to this podcast is you performing with cats and jimmy herring and the oh song yeah bird with no name which is <laughs> yeah. so cool yeah that one I, we had no idea how that was going to turn out either because it was uh jimmy did all his parts elsewhere so i think we kind of came in and played sort of the song and then we just kind of said, all right. Then, so I hadn't heard it until recently, but yeah, it's amazing. There are many um, examples of Neil talking about Jimmy as like the greatest guitarist of all time. Um, so <laughs> I feel like this is just such a such a cool example, and I, I love that it's the intro song for this podcast series, especially. Um, you also mentioned the losing end again, yes, which is yes. uh, Jesse Acock's um, version. Yep. Yeah, he's a sweet kid. Tell me all your secrets tonight. Money down. 
they all really love Jesse. They, uh, they had a real thing. Um, yeah, I, I, I love that song. We did a, there was a, a tribute thing at the Capitol Theater as well. I got to play a bunch of those songs with people too, which was amazing. And oh, there was a really hard moment because Neil recorded Ship of Fools just with a guitar and voice. And Cats added music to that, which was which is hard to play along to your dead buddy. But at the show, we played it to that track and there were pictures at the same time. And I didn't know there were going to be pictures because at the rehearsal, there weren't pictures. <laughs> so it was hard not to cry. I think a lot of people were having a hard time not crying while playing that song with, you know, with Neil's voice from beyond. It was version is so beautiful and that was such a special moment at the capitol and i think it meant a lot to people um to hear that and probably uh that was like a bonus track on roots and wings so probably a lot of people's first time hearing him sing that song which is really cool yeah it's a great version both was like my gateway drug to the grateful dead <laughs> was that song yeah or that version that version. Oh, wow. No way. Is, yeah, it was definitely a Neil fan long before I knew it about any of this stuff. Wow. Yeah, I wish that I had seen Neil uh, back in the, you know, in the, in the 90s when we were both we were both playing the same places. I mean, I, I may have. We probably were in the same clubs at the same time. Like, it's just impossible that we weren't. Right. Uh, but I, I, I wish I had seen him in his long-haired glory, his clean-shaven, long-haired glory. <laughs> yeah. He well, was a fox. To... Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, how was playing with some of the other artists at those sessions who were maybe older friends of Neil, who maybe you hadn't met before? Do you have any stories or highlights of those sessions? <sighs> Yeah, the guys that played on some of Neil's first records that he did with Jim, Don Heffington and, and Bob Glob, <laughs> which is the best name. Best name. Yeah. Uh, 
I just saw him, Bob Glob, recently because he was playing with Jackson Brown, and I went and saw them at the the uh, Santa Barbara Bowl. Oh, nice. um, but yeah, Don Heffington passed away not very long ago. Right. But playing with those guys was a real treat and learning experience because they have a lot of knowledge. They've been making amazing records for longer than I've been alive, and it totally shows. It's really amazing to watch, especially because they played together for so much too. Just to watch the process of how they come up with the perfect parts, the, the economy of notes, the economy of movement. They seem to get to the, the right place really fast, which is hard to do, especially in a studio because there's so many directions you can go. And those guys just immediately, they would hear the song and they would go, cool. And they knew, you know, they sort of narrowed it down to this and then they would play a little bit and it narrowed down to that. And then within 10 minutes, it was, you know, not too much, not too little. It's really hard to do that. Uh, so that was totally a joy and learning experience with those guys. And then having Dave Schools play, that was fun. It's really fun. He's great. But yeah, Heffington and Glob, that's a serious rhythm section. That was really special. Yeah. Yeah, the, the cast list, cast and crew on this album is pretty incredible from start to finish. You know, there's some yeah. real, real luminaries. So. Yeah, we got Tony and Jeff, and it was, it was great. That was, those yeah. sessions were really great. I got to see people that I hadn't seen in a while. To play together, that studio is very special. The songs are so easy to play. And I don't mean that in a way of belittling the songwriting. I'm, I'm not saying it like that. I mean that they are so intuitive that they almost play themselves, mm -hmm. uh, which is all the best songs in the world do that. It's, it's, it almost plays you, and his tunes do that. They, there's nothing extra. There's nothing unnecessary. Everything is the right place, the right length, and it just makes sense. You almost know where it's going to go next without having to, you know what I mean? They play themselves. It's rare. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, uh, you know, we know you're playing for being so funky and sprawling. And um, I'm wondering what it was like for you to play some songs that are maybe more like traditional singer-songwriter. Um, and, I mean, on the Billy Strings song, you're playing an analog piano. And I know that most people haven't heard that. So what was that like for you? Uh, great. I love piano. You know, with, with Circles Around the Sun, we made a pretty conscious decision to try to make everything kind of sci-fi. <laughs> so we didn't use any traditional sounds that might bring your ear to a, a place that you're used to. But I love, I love playing piano. I wish I was better. at. I'm not a pianist per se. There are pianists out there that are really great piano players. I, I can play keyboards pretty well, but I love playing piano. And it was great to, to play on those tunes. Again, because the songs, you really don't have to do much. You really don't. Which, again, is the best, you know, unless you're listening to some sort of progressive music where it is more about the muscle of the playing. Usually, the less you play, the better. Uh, for singer-songwriter stuff, at least. And you, his songs, you never had to try to do any, you didn't have to do extra work to pull the song off. 
I am saying the same thing that I just said, but yeah. you, you don't have to work hard. It's, it's already there. That's really interesting. Cause I feel like, um, that probably really, um, transmuted to his guitar playing style because it is, you know, like Billy said, nothing sticks out where it shouldn't be. It's, it's kind of understated and it's just like everything is right where it should be. So that's kind of a, something interesting that you brought up. Yeah. He's, he, I don't think I know anybody or have known anybody who was such a student, not, not just music. I don't mean just music as in like theory of music, but he was such a, he studied records and the sounds and, and why he always knew why a record was made, which is interesting because I never thought about that stuff. Like mm -hmm. he knew the, the backstory to the songs, how they were recorded, what was going on when they were recorded, which really adds a lot of depth to the song. If you know that so-and-so was going through this at the time or they were in this studio and this was happening in the same city as that, you know, it, it's, it, it, it really helps put songs in their, in their place and recordings in their place. And he studied that stuff. Him and I got down on, we came a little from different angles. I kind of came more from, from funk angle, but I would try and study why something, why is that so good? Like, what is it about that little tiny piece of four bars? That's so amazing. And he did the same thing to, I mean, to a lot of Rolling Stone stuff. And he just, he, he really turned me on to, seeing music in a, in a different way, seeing records that I knew or that I thought I knew, he'd go, no, no, but like, think about it like this and then play the record and um, do it. And it would open up a whole new thing. I mean, listening to records with Neil was, was the best. Record shopping with Neil was the best. He turned me on to so many records on the road. We'd go to record mm -hmm. stores and he would just kind of like walk by me and like drop a record in my pile. And I, he's like, you got to have that one. You know? So I learned a lot from him and, and Chris, both avid record collectors. And, but Neil studied the why of stuff, not mm -hmm. just the how, but the why. And I think that's, that's what adds the extra dimension to his playing and his songwriting. Yeah, it's so interesting. Um, are there any like, top of mind records that he turned you on to? <laughs> yes. Uh, there's an artist called Johnny Guitar Watson, and he is known for sort of funky songs in mid-70s stuff. They're a little bit silly, but there's one record called Listen, and it's before he really turned into his kind of pimp character. And it's just a beautiful record that I, I, didn't, I knew nothing about it. And I, don't, I forget where we were. Might have been Ohio or something at a record store that we would go to every time we would play this venue. And he just found one and said, you have to have this record. It's hard to find. You have to. So I got it and I brought it home. Actually, we had a record player on the bus at the time, which was pretty great. So I played it and that record is amazing. And since then, I have not seen another copy of it. That's like my special record that he, you know, he was like this. Plus, it was up my alley because I'm sort of mm -hmm. funk guy. So he kind of he found, you know, the one record that I don't know. That's I always wanted to cover some songs from that record mm. uh, for with him, with him, because yeah. the, the whole record is harmonies, two people singing harmony the whole time, pretty much. And when we were thinking about maybe singing 
in circles. So we were tossing the, the idea around. Oh, uh, wow. Just because he's such a great singer, you know, it was kind of like, you know, I thought it would be cool if we had a few records without and if we slowly kind of brought in vocals and then because, you know, what a gift he had that he wasn't using in that band. Right. Damn. <laughs> I mean, we weren't even, we were maybe not even lyrics, maybe just sort of tones and stuff. We were just going to mm. start to bring in uh, the idea of voices. But, uh, you know, that's uh, hard. Yeah, he's, he was the great singer. So, Yeah, absolutely. So obviously you're on the Circles uh, tour right now. So uh, Actually, I'm on a Grateful Shred tour right now. We, Circles, oh, okay. yeah, Circles did... Uh, we just finished a run that we finished in Red Rocks, which was, I, yes, that's an amazing place to play. I wish that we could, I wish Neil was there for that one. But yes, this place that I'm in now, or, or you know, Dan Horn from Circles Around the Sun has a, has a Grateful Dead band called Grateful Shred, and I play with them here and there, so here I am. Gotcha. Cool. Well, you did just have a great run with Circles, and... I'm sure it's probably uh, difficult at times, but it's really cool that you guys are continuing and, and, you know, every time you play, you're, you're honoring him because it's, you know, music that you guys wrote together. So that's kind of yeah. a bittersweet. Yeah. Aspect. Funny enough, uh, the guy that has the guitar seat now, uh, John Lee Shannon, he was tight with Neil. Neil, Neil really loved his guitar playing. He had played on a record that Neil was producing and Neil had written in his letter that he wanted us to play with that guy. And we didn't do anything about it because I think we kind of thought, I don't know, there's anger that comes with, with that. It's one of the stages, obviously, of that. It's, it's kind of like you don't get to tell us what to do. <laughs> sure. You know, you, you, you did what you did. So um, I think we just didn't really take it seriously. But here we are doing it. So that's, that's a cool thing, yeah. That is yeah. cool. And John's doing a great job. He is doing a great job. And there, you know, he knows Neil. So I mean, we're obviously not ever trying to do anything that's Neely. That was Neil's thing. Um, mm -hmm. But he does know, you know, he spent a lot of time with Neil. And, right. you know, I still, I don't know. There's still like, there's still a bunch of stuff I see that I think only I could talk to Neil about, you know, mainly funny stuff, just something ridiculous that I think he would laugh at and only him would laugh at. And that still, that still happens a lot. Yeah, that's tough. Well, finally, I wanted to ask you what the mission of the Neil Castell Music Foundation means to you. Um, it means to me, I think it's, 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 Letting, know, it's hard to explain, but you can get, you can get twisted out in music. It's hard. It's hard to, to, uh, to keep it together. If you've been on the road for a long time and you're doing this, that, and the other, I think there's a lot of stuff people don't talk about. And I think it's really hard to talk about that stuff. It's uncomfortable. And, um, I definitely feel like to any way to help make a platform where people feel as though they have a place to go to talk 
he had a, you know, I think he tried to talk to us about stuff, but it's really hard. And then I think he shut down. And I went through stuff too on the road. I've had my downs and I've had to have help and stuff. And, and it's important to have help. It's important to be able to talk about what you're going through. And it doesn't have to end up the way that it does. It, it's, it's, life is really small when you're in that place. You don't see all the stuff. It goes down to a little tiny pin hole. And do you need help to see around that, to see the, the peripheral, that, that there are lots of things that are important. Um, it's yeah. really hard to see that when you're, when you're, when you're in that place like that. Uh, when something like what he did makes sense to you, then mm -hmm. you're not seeing anything but that and finding ways to help people get out of that. Have you um, become more proactive about taking care of yourself when you're on the road? Cause you're still out there a lot. <laughs> yeah, I, I have. Um, yeah. I don't party as much at all mm. as I used to. And that's, that's a good thing for me. I had a lot of fun with it. And uh, that's a main, that's one of the main things and checking in more with friends and stuff when you're gone. I used to just kind of disappear. It's now I try and check in more, be around, but yeah, not abusing myself terribly anymore helps. Everyone's got their, yeah, everyone has their addictions and their things. And Neil had his and I had mine and, you know, it, things got bad after he did what he did. I, I kind of, I, I took you know, one of the ways, one of the only ways I knew how to get rid of pain. So and that's not sustainable. So mm -hmm. I stopped. Yeah. Well, that's a huge deal. So congrats on taking care of yourself and doing what you need to do to get through it. All right. Well, Adam, do you have like any, you know, memories or anything you want people to know and remember about Neil? Um, I just said a little laugh that he did. I can't even do it. I guess this is, this is again, bogus because there's no way to really explain this, but there's this, he had these little mannerisms, little things he would say, uh, and little laugh that would, I don't know, anybody who knew him would know, uh, funny stories. I don't know. We just, we just did everything together. No, we just had a blast. I don't know if specific stories to tell or anything that would be interesting to anybody. Just, I just, he just was somebody that I felt comfortable with, uh, at all times. Um, you could be sitting in a room with him and not talk and it's fine. Or you talk and it's one of those, it just, he was family. So that's, that's not a funny story. Well, that's a great summation. And like I said, I really appreciate your honesty and your candor. And I know that it can be tough uh, to, you know, have these conversations, but I really appreciate it. And um, yeah, I think there were some great stories in there and a lot of wonderful memories. So thank you so much for sharing everything and taking the time. Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. I feel like, uh, I don't know. I wish I could explain more about what I want musicians to be able to 
be comfortable talking about, but I don't know. Well, I think we're going to figure it out in this series because we're talking to a lot of people. So covering a lot of ground, but yeah. yeah. It's really hard to talk about that stuff. When you're on, when someone's going through that, it's really hard to, for them. And it's really hard for everybody else too. It's, it's a really touchy thing. And sometimes you can scare people away sometimes. And I think this happened a bit with him when he, when he did open up about how he was feeling the reaction from, from us was, you know, emergency. Mm -hmm. Um, and that I think can sometimes turn people off, make, make them go, okay, well, I'm not going to do that again. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to show that side of myself again because everybody freaked out, you know, Mm -hmm. and I don't want that to happen again. And so it's almost like if there's somebody that you know, that's, that you think has a capacity for that or is going through that, it's almost at the point where it's, it's, it's like when they, when they think, when you feel like they're doing okay, when they're doing good is often the time that they're the worst. Mm-hmm. If you've made your mind up to do something, uh, then the pressure's off, right? So I think that's why a lot of people often say, oh, they, were, they seem like they were doing better. Right. That's like a common story of, like, oh, they were terrible at this point, and I, we, you know, they, they talk to me about stuff and then they just seemed like they were doing okay. Like they were getting better. Everything was kind of fine. And then it happens. Yeah. And I think a lot of that's because if, if somebody has made up their mind, um, the, the last thing you want to do is tell people about it because they're going to, they're trying to do everything they can to stop you. Right. So it's really tricky to. Uh, yeah. I think, um, you know, there's a lot of language, you know, around destigmatizing mental health about like reaching out if you need help. And that's just putting a lot of onus on the person. But I think what you were talking about, about reaching out to people and and checking in and being more open with your friends in general and creating a climate of openness where, you know, you and your community are able to be just more expressive in general, good or bad. I think that is all really important work to like getting to a place where people can uh, be open, be more present with each other, whether what you're going through is, you know, something, some, something great or something tough. So I think, uh, I think, you know, you kind of hit it on the head when you said that you are, you know, you're not disappearing anymore. Yeah. Don't disappear. Um, And if you know somebody that you are worried about, like do, you know, do the thing, say, go cross the threshold, say, say the stuff that might seem inappropriate, you know, Mm. Uh, because, you know, if you feel like that might be happening and you don't, you know, that's terrible. It just, it's the awkwardness is a lot better than, (laughs) you know, than, than the bad result. So it's something to talk about. Definitely something to talk about. I think most people, almost every musician I know has considered doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe not, maybe not completely seriously, but, you know, almost everybody I know has had a moment where they thought thoughts like that. And just to know that everybody has had that is special. Just to know that 
you're not the only one that feels that way. Right. Um, and what Neil did kind of opened up a lot, at least for me, opened up a lot of conversations with people about that and how it is, how it can be very lonely and very sad on the road and getting older. Um, and still, you know, just being out there on the road, just doing this, you know, and, and being older. And it's, it's, there's a big existential thing. Neil was definitely having his hitting 50 years old kind of existential crisis. And I, I mean, I get that it's, it's a thing. So to be able to talk about it, really talk about it because what he wrote in his letter was if he had said that he was so eloquent in, in describing those things on the printed page just never really talked about it at least to me uh, mm -hmm. and if there was a way to do that just to I mean, because him and I really had that thing we, we had this grim we called it East Coast Grim it was this thing I think Gary and him and you know it was it's just this kind of bleak, funny, bleak thing that, that like East Coast people seem to have. And uh, yeah, we like connected on sadness a lot of times, mm -hmm. uh, which is just not, not enough, obviously, to, to have him feel comfortable enough to, to really talk openly. Well, um, in the last interview that I conducted with Farmer Dave, he mentioned you and how, you know, how much it meant to him when you were leaving somewhere. And you said, you said uh, that you loved him and he brought up how, you know, maybe before, you know, this horrible thing happened, you may have felt that way, but you wouldn't have talked about it. But, you know, there's an example of just being more open and creating like an environment where you can talk about your feelings and how much, you know, he appreciated that. So I guess that is, you know, the good thing that came out. Yeah. Telling people that I do, I'm telling a lot more people that I love them. That's for sure. <laughs> it's, it's good. It feels good. Um, it's, it's connection and that's, it's a support system. We all get it. We're all musicians or artists. And that's, you know, we, we feel certain, you know, everybody feels stuff, but it, it's uh, music and art is, it's an emotional thing. And, and the road is a strange place to do that. Mm -hmm. And Neil spent a lot of time, we both spent a lot of time on the road, all our whole lives, a lot. And it was what we wanted to do. We both as kids, you know, dreamed of tour buses and cool amplifiers and, you know, the, the, the whole thing. That's what we want. And then you get it. You get everything you want. And I think there's a bit that we forgot to focus on. Mm. I think that I, I get it. You, you forget. You you're, you're looking here and you forget the, the base, the foundation of right. stuff. And then sometimes you get to the top and then the whole thing is empty because you didn't build the stuff that, that it seems kind of, it seems so easy for some people to do. And, you know, sometimes we don't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's important to take care of that stuff. You know, whatever, whatever it is that you need to do. Yeah, because therapy is expensive. Yes, it is. But uh, if you need it, reach yeah. out to the Casal Music Foundation. Yeah, having a, a 
a, just a number to call. I mean, that's great. Music cares is a great thing. Just, I think it's, I think it's, I think there's more happening. I do. I, I feel like there's more awareness of maybe I just became more aware of it because of Neil's death. Maybe I started seeing things more, but it feels like there's definitely a deeper awareness recently over the last few years of, of that, of trying to, there's, you know, there's gotta be another way because it's awful. I mean, the, the biggest thing that I learned from what Neil did was don't do that. Right. Don't do that. It's, it's the, it's, it's awful for the people that, that are left. It's the worst, you know, don't, you just, you can't like that. When he did that for me, it like, if that was ever an option for me, that it was, it was gone. I was like, I can't do that. This is what it looks like when it's happened. This is what the, this is what it's like afterward. You can't do yeah. that. So, you know, just knowing that you can't means that there's only one other option, which is that you talk. Mm-hmm. That you talk to people and you find out that people understand. They do. People know. It's a bunch of stuff people don't want to talk about. But they really do, actually. Mm-hmm. Start doing it and everybody chimes in. And everyone's been through this shit. Yeah, and the more you do it, the easier it gets, hopefully. Yeah, and the more by by trying to explain to somebody how cool the world is, you also... Uh, reinforce that in yourself right you know what I mean it's like that it's like it's much easier for I mean at least for me it's like easier to help somebody else than it is to help myself you know mm-hmm. totally like much easier but in that certain way if you're if you're telling somebody look right you know this is how cool this is and the moon is amazing and gravity is awesome and, you know and and uh look where we are in the universe and it's amazing and uh and then you go yeah like all right. Right. You know, because it helps you, it helps you too. And gravity is amazing. <laughs> um, but yes, that is, that is the, the, everybody has the regrets about that kind of stuff, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish that I had had more courage to just like sit him down, you know, and be mm-hmm. like, this is going to suck. Like, this is going to suck for both of us, but come on, like, what's going on? Because, yeah, it's really hard to ask for help. It's really, it's, of all things I know, I mean, Neil especially did not want to be a bother. Mm-hmm. Um, I just really think, I don't know. He, he didn't want to be a bother. I think he really felt there was stuff that you just keep to yourself. He had, he had a, a, he had a sort of, that, that, that kind of old school, even though he does not seem like an old school type of person at all. He kind of, does have that like old school kind of, you know, keep it to yourself thing. So it's hard. He, he was good at, at brushing off, you know, mm-hmm. if you tried to come in, it could be, yeah, you know, right. and, oh, but I get it. It's, it's, you don't want to be a bother. Yeah. And it's very cliche, but if you bottle that stuff up, like, you know, it has to go somewhere. Eventually you can't do it forever. Yeah. The stress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he was, uh, I don't know. He was a lot. He was, he was very stressed by the end. I, I'm, I didn't know how to, I, I, that's the thing. I, I didn't know how to, how to get through that. 
I just, I just, I don't know. I always, <laughs> I really looked up to Neil. I always thought that he had shit under control. No matter what, no matter how weird something was, I always thought, well, he's he, like, he, he got it. He's fine. He'll get it. He can handle this. Uh, you know, way more, way more than I thought I could. Um, mm-hmm. I just felt like he, he had a really good, you know, way of handling stuff. He, he could do it. And I was wrong. Yeah. So that's, all, that's a big lesson to people that you might look up to and think, ah, you know, they got all this shit together. They, they're, they don't. Right. Because I don't. Yeah. You know, <laughs> if I don't, probably most people don't. You know, it's just. No one has it all figured out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, well, I think uh, you had some great points and, you know, just general advice on how to open those conversations up and, and just do it as uncomfortable as it may be, it's important. Yeah. And yeah, because you don't want to be, he's every day, every day. So many people think about him every day, every day. Yeah. So many people that I know personally every single day, and that's going to happen for the rest of our lives. Right. So, and yes, people can die. And of course you miss them. People do die, everyone dies. But to do it like that, it's just, there's a violence to it that is really hard to accept the person being gone. A death, a a natural death, or or even an accidental death, I mean, that's very hard as well. But I think a suicide is much harder to ever accept. You miss that person in a different way than I, th- than I think you do if they just passed. Do you know what I mean? Uh, definitely. I, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, but someone else pointed out to me, um, you know, because I think you, you touched on anger earlier and how that's part of the, the grieving process. And I think a lot of times it's, it's easier to be angry than sad because, you know, it hurts so much and, and anger can have like, it's just easier. Um, and you know, someone was, was feeling that way. And, and then they, you know, kind of had the realization that like mental health is like, it is health and, and it's as much as we view it as like, you know, different from getting into, you know, a car accident or something. Um, it is like, you know, an illness. So, you know, pointing that out to me just kind of like made me realize, you know, um, that, yeah, you have to take care of your mental health um, because obviously it affects your physical well-being um, as well. But um, that's really, it's really true that it it hurts in such a different way. But um, it is also, you know, it can be like a disorder or a result of illness too. It is its own illness. It is. It's an illness. It's, it's uh, just, he, he, he had, um, he had his, he had addictions that were were not drug or alcohol related, but there are just as many detrimental things in life that you can be addicted to behavior. You know, it's really hard to get out. I think uh, I think a lot of people in this business, especially, um, a lot of the things that you learn to do is not the right way to do things. 
and you get addicted to certain behaviors that are not right necessarily. Some of them are not that bad. Some of them are bad and you get addicted to, to certain things you can. And, uh, it's hard. I think from what I can get from him, it's hard to have reached a certain point in your life age wise and stuff. And you look back and go, wow, I really didn't learn enough. You know, like I'm just realizing that in order to be uh, this person that is capable, there's so much work that has to be done. It's daunting at my age. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think some people kind of, when they're younger, go, ah, like if I don't take care of this thing, like that's not going to sustain, you know, that's not a good way. But sometimes in this business, it's like you, 20, 30 years goes by. You're kind of doing the same thing. Right. And you look back and go, wow, I needed to, I forgot to do all this other stuff. And, and now how do I, how do I do that now? You know, I, I don't have, I don't have the wherewithal to do that. That's decades of work. And I, I don't have that, you know? Yeah. Or the people that you look up to, you realize are their behaviors that you, you know, learned yeah. from aren't super healthy themselves. Yeah. I have some father figures that really shouldn't have been father figures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I don't know what the answer is. How do you, how do you do it? How do you, how do you retrain your brain and, and, you know, learn to have healthier habits and make better decisions? I mean, you, you touched on it. You're doing it. I mean, that must Uh, have been difficult. Yeah. It feels good to, the longer that you do it for, it feels good. It's practice. It's practice. We, we, you know, a lot of people in this business, we just have bad practice. We practice the wrong Thing. it's like it's like when you run your scales you know you don't have the fingering right but you, that's how you learned it you know and then you go to a real teacher and they go you're playing it completely wrong you go, well you know it's that you, you practice the wrong way mm-hmm. and then you have to do I know, i've tried to do it in, just in my playing uh i've had a teacher and he said nope you know <laughs> the way you've been playing is wrong and and you have to go back. I said, well, you know, I've been playing for what do I have to do? He says, well, you're going to have to act like you're six years old again. You're going to have to run these scales at this slow tempo and unlearn everything that you learned that's wrong and try to replace it with good stuff. So, and that seems really daunting, you know, to yeah. go, go be in your 40s and have someone say, you're going to have to run C major scale two octaves at, you know, really slow tempo for like an hour. And he says, what? That's, I haven't done that in 40 years, you know, but... It's that kind of stuff. You, mm-hmm. have, you have to, you know, it's, I, I you know, I, I think he saw a lot of stuff that he had to do. And instead of it being inspiring to do it, he decided it, it wasn't possible. Right. So I've decided, and most people I know have decided that it is possible and at least give it a try. Yeah. That's a, that's the difference, I guess. And that's really important. Yeah. Because that's not, yeah end of the day, I, I, I can't imagine, I can't imagine something that's so bad that, that the end result would be that. Mm. I can't. I maybe, like I said, maybe I could have before, but after, because he, he's the first person that I was really close to that, that did that. Yeah. It, um, 
Uh, I think uh, you mentioned earlier that you feel like there is more awareness now and maybe that's um, just our community. Um, but I think it's true because obviously, you know, this foundation and organizations like Backline, um, you know, are are there and they're being really loud and offering support. So I just want to reiterate for everyone listening that, um, you know, the help is out there. You, you know, if it is, you know, unfathomable to like think about talking to a friend, like there are resources that um, maybe you know, easier for you to access um, or vice versa. So it's out there. Um, and yeah, it's not, it's not easy to ask for, but um, it exists. And I think that, you know, those orgs are doing a really, really great job of like a lot of outreach and, and proactive um, healthcare. Like you just have to, you know, either whether it's therapy or talking or whatever, you know, sobriety, whatever you have to do to like, it's, you know, it's just like working out, it's exercising, it, it sucks, <laughs> but yeah. you have to do it before it gets to the point where it's even, even harder. Yes, it gets to the point where you can't get out of your chair, right? It's, exactly. that's the thing, like, you got to go start doing some exercise before you can't walk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, do you have any, um, anything like that you do just as sort of like a meditative practice or something like walking around or Whatever. Uh, I wish I had something that was that was deep and spiritual. No, I, I, I don't. I find myself uh, when I travel. I find oh, and we've been to some really beautiful places recently. I find myself noticing that stuff. I try to notice mm-hmm. it more. So there's times that you just kind of breeze through stuff. There's outdoor shows I played where you know you'll there'll be a beautiful mountainscape and the sun is setting and it's just gorgeous and you're in this amazing uh place and i see it before i go on stage and then i don't notice it again until i'm done and i think i just had my head buried in here you know i was just in in you know so i'm, I'm i try to always make an effort if some you know to to try to take these breaks and look out and uh notice stuff because there's a lot of amazing things happening all the time I mean, that's super deep. That is like an intensely spiritual practice. There have been like lots of, you know, psychological studies on the effects of just being in nature and absorbing that beauty. So I think that's a, that's a great way, especially if you're like me and you don't love to like go jogging. Yeah. <laughs> just going outside is like, you know, massive. But yeah, that's, that's, that's the, the amount of shows I played in beautiful places where it's the end of the show. I look up and go, Really? I just spent an hour not looking at that or not like playing to that, you know, or, or taking some of that in and trying to play, especially in music, uh, you know, with circles around the sun, it's, it's a lot of that music. It's very, uh, it's very improvisational. So things like that are, can, you can take that in, you can see something and go out, I'm going to play that, you know, or you see a mountain and go, cool. I'm like, that's part of what's going on. And so I'm trying to, to do that. Because yeah. Getting, getting inward, as we were talking before, when things shrink down to a little pinhole, it's, it's inward. It's being inward that's isolating, inward, that's all, can feel great. I used to come off the road and I would, I don't want to see anybody. I don't want to talk to anybody. I want to listen to records for five days straight and, you know, not leave the apartment. And I felt like I deserved that because I had just been on a bus and seven weeks of being around. And it's fine, you do, but it, it, isolating is, is not great 
Yeah. It's, it's inward, inward. And it can sometimes feel like you're, Ooh, I'm focusing on myself and it's inward, but you have to, you have to go out, uh, to get perspective. Mm-hmm. Otherwise you, you go bananas. Yeah. That's great advice. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Adam. Well, thank you so much for sharing and being so open and, you know, it, like we talked about it, it, it's tough, but, uh, you know, good comes out of it. So really appreciate it. Sure. Thanks. This podcast is brought to you by Backline, the music industry's mental health and wellness resource hub. Launched in 2019, Backline gives artists, crews, and their families quick and easy access to mental health and wellness resources. Backline provides individuals with case management and offers virtual support groups as well as yoga, meditation, and breath work. To donate, learn more, or get in touch for personalized care, visit backline.care. That's B-A-C-K-L-I-N-E dot C-A-R-E. Thanks for listening to Highway Butterfly, the stories of Neil Casal. Tune in next week to hear more from the artists who made this tribute album a reality. Highway Butterfly, The Songs of Neil Casal is out on November 12th. All album net proceeds go to the Neil Casal Music Foundation. You can pre-order the album and learn more at neilcasalmusicfoundation.org. Osiris.